Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Huntington's disease is an inherited disorder that results in the death of brain cells. Disease progression leads to the characteristic hallmark symptom of Huntington's, the uncoordinated jerky body movements. But subtle problems with mood and mental abilities are actually among the earliest symptoms of Huntington's disease. People living with Huntington's can also go on to develop dementia, but this form of dementia differs from Alzheimer's disease in that those affected continue to recognise people and places until the very late stages of the illness. My name is Lakshani Mendes and I'm a NIHR Research Project Coordinator based at University College London. The research I did for my master's thesis was actually on Huntington's disease, so I'm looking forward to chatting to our expert panel today on the work they're doing. So on today's panel, we have Marina Papuzzi, Lauren Byrne, um, and Akshina. Welcome all. Um, All three of them work at the UCL Huntington's Disease Centre in the Department of Neurodegenerative Diseases. But before we get stuck into the research they're doing, let's get to know our panellists a little bit better. So can you all tell me a little bit about yourselves and why you chose to work in sort of this area? Marina, uh, we'll start with you. So my, I ended up in Huntington's almost by accident. I wasn't intending to work in Huntington's. My PhD was in language and looking at um, language processing. But then I started doing more clinical work, working with patients that had stroke and looking at how the brain adapts uh, after a traumatic incident. And that kind of work led me to work um, with HD with HD patients and looking how the brain adapts to the presence of neurodegeneration and how, especially with a focus in, in, in cognitive decline. And kind of at the same time, sort of two of my, both of my grandmothers had dementia. Uh, one of them had Alzheimer's. So it kind of brought it closer to home and trying to understand and doing, doing my bit, I guess, to help out. So, Lauren, um, what about you? What made you sort of choose this research topic? So, um, I'm actually from a HD family. Um, my dad has Huntington's disease and several of my family members. So, um, I kind of started thinking more and more about HD research not very naturally. Um, I did biology in my undergraduate degree and kept going for topics, picking uh, research projects and things that would relate to neurodegeneration and then Huntington's disease. Um, and I found out about Sarah Tabrizzi, um, who's uh, the amazing head of our uh, director of our Huntington's Disease Centre, who is this powerhouse woman uh, leading clinical research and translational research in Huntington's disease, was um, in London as well and at UCL so that's why I um, decided to do a master's at the Institute of Neurology um, with the sole aim of trying to get into her research team and that's where I met Marina <laughs> and uh, thankfully got a project um, work looking at uh, MRI scans and after her pilot brain train study her neurofeedback study um, and then I met my current boss um, uh 
which is how I started my work in biofluid biomarkers in Huntington's, and here I am doing my PhD. That's awesome. Um, and um, how is your work funded at the moment? Who's funding your work? So I'm funded by um, the MRC, the Medical Research Council. Um, my boss, Ed Wilde, um, got a Clinician Scientist Award about around towards the end of my master's project whenever I met him. So it was good timing that I asked him to go for a coffee and <laughs> um, to talk about his research because he just got his funding and needed a research assistant and I needed a job. So uh, a match made in heaven. Um, and I was keen to do a PhD and very lucky that I had a, a three to four year um, job post for the study. Actually, I know you're funded by the Leonard Wolfson Foundation. Um, and, yeah, same question to you guys, I, I guess. Okay. Um, so I'm a doctor. I'm a psychiatrist. Um, so even at medical school, I was kind of interested in brain, mind and kind of psychiatric symptoms. Um, and then when I started practicing in psychiatry, I did a lot of work with severe mental illness, so schizophrenia. And then I moved into kind of Alzheimer's disease. And one of the areas of neurodegeneration that uh, I'm very interested in is the neuropsychiatric symptoms. Um, they often, some of the most um, disabling and distressing for patients and family members. They're very, very hard to understand, very, very hard to treat. Um, and so um, that's kind of been my interest in kind of like, how does, what does neurodegeneration do to the brain and how does that put people at risk of developing kind of psychiatric symptoms. Um, so I, I did some work at the, the, the Maudsley and Alzheimer's disease and then because I wanted to kind of get a broader understanding of neurodegeneration, I applied for a Wolfson Fellowship at UCL. Um, and then I did a couple of rotations, two in the Dementia Research Centre in frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And I also came to work with Marina on a kind of a brain imaging study. Um, and then I I mean, HD, as we'll talk about later, I mean, one of the defining features of HD are the psychiatric features. Um, and so, you know, um, I was kind of very interested in the condition. And so that's what I chose to do my PhD on, the kind of neuropsychiatry of HD, basically. So welcome all. Um, kick off with maybe talking a little bit about what symptoms associated with um, H-linked dementia, um, just because, well, I haven't heard too much about it in that context um, and maybe you can just shed some light on that. So I mean uh, so the so we, I see a lot of patients in clinic um, uh, and I mean I think uh, so HD is really kind of characterized by three kind of pillars of symptoms so there are the motor features uh, so you're in the introduction you mentioned the kind of hyperkinetic symptoms so career and involuntary movements People also get slowing, uh, unsteady gait, incoordination. Um, so it's quite a, actually a diverse movement disorder. Uh, the second pillar of the kind of HD symptomatology are the cognitive features. So this would, I guess, be kind of what you may call the HD dementia. And these largely fall into the kind of executive function bracket. So people with HD have difficulty, um, kind of they get a lot of cognitive rigidity. They have difficulty processing things or keeping up um, and um, changing their minds and um, can get overwhelmed quite quickly. Um, sometimes they can be a bit impulsive in their decision making. It's those kind of executive functions that are typically go wrong, especially early in the disease when the degeneration is relatively limited. Um, and then the third kind of pillar that, that, I, that I've been treating for the last couple of years in my clinic is the other neuropsychiatric features. So HD is associated with a lot of psychiatric 
um, disorder. So I see a lot of depression, anxiety, irritability, um, sometimes aggression. Um, I rarely treat, um, well, not I say not uncommonly treat psychosis. Um, so quite a wide range of psychiatric features. Um, and so the three together really kind of make up the clinical symptomatology of HD. And I think some of the things that's, that are quite challenging about it are the interactions between those three things. So when people have kind of fixed, uh, like have cognitive impairment that means that they're quite rigid um, in their thinking, it's then quite difficult if you're trying to treat them for something like irritability or depression. Um, so it's it's a kind of a it's it's a very de- devastating dementia really and um, and certainly you know I say this as a psychiatrist obviously but I certainly think HD is has this huge prevalence of neuropsychiatric features and the 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 bird a lot of burden in terms of distress and disability comes from those features kind of above and beyond some of the other dementias where neuropsychiatry is certainly less prevalent early on. Thanks and um, and then we could talk a little bit more about the research you guys are doing. So, um, Marina, if I start off with you, maybe you can fill us in on some of the work that you're doing. So my work is kind of has two kind of broad um, aspects. So one of them is kind of looking at cognitive impairment in HD and also kind of some of the risk factors that affect impairment. More importantly, kind of I look at cognitive stimulation throughout the lifespan. So education, professional uh, hobbies, intellectually stimulating hobbies like chess playing or reading, things like that. How does that have an effect on the progression of, of uh, Huntington's disease? This is kind of work in progress. So we've seen a lot of research in Alzheimer's, kind of talking about exercise and kind of cognitive stimulation, also in healthy aging and how that has an effect in kind of slowing down um, the, the, the cognitive decline. But this hasn't been really studied at all in HD. So this is kind of some of my more recent work. And I also kind of in parallel to that, I also work on developing kind of non-invasive um, interventions to try to intervene and try to delay, again, cognitive decline. So at the present time, irrespective of what kind of lifestyle people have adopted in the past, like what can we do to try to slow it down? And the critical thing is about them being non-invasive is that could they could be um, kind of work in conjunction with other kind of disease um, uh, related with other kind of disease modifying drugs that are much more uh, invasive and therefore you need something to balance it that it can be readily kind of used together. Thanks. Um, and Lauren and Akshay, how does your work sort of fit into this area? Does it fit in? Is it complementary? My work um, probably fits more into the current efforts to develop disease-modifying therapies in HD. So um, currently we're really excited about um, gene silencing or Huntington-lowering drugs, which at the moment are delivered through intrathecal injections, so through mm-hmm. lumbar puncture. My work with Ed was running a study called HDCSF, where we're, which was an observational study where we're collecting or have collected spinal fluid and, or which we call CSF or cerebral spinal fluid, and blood from HD patients with matched phenotypic data um, and MRI data. And that was a the first. This is going to be the first um, longitudinal collection of CSF in Huntington's disease, which we just completed collection a couple of weeks ago. So we're starting to analyse the data, um, and it's going to be super important for the current trials, um, particularly for developing the tools that we are 
um, using to measure efficacy and endpoints. So, um, for example, the CSF being able to measure CSF mutant Huntington was crucial for the phase one of that trial. Um, There's a lot of news on it last year um, where we were able to show that the drug could lower the Huntington protein in the CNS. Um, without the ability to measure mutant Huntington in the CSF, we wouldn't have been able to show that um, target engagement. So developing tools like this um, and biofluid biomarkers will hopefully help that. And that's where my um, fits in with um, the rest. And Akshay, what about yours? Um, yeah, so as, as I said earlier, so my interest is the kind of neuropsychiatric mm -hmm. symptoms that people get in dementia. Um, and, you know, until we have a cure, obviously, we need to continue to develop ways that we can care for people. And understanding why people develop certain neuropsychiatric symptoms is a lot of the focus of what I do. And in particular, I'm actually interested in uh, the concept of motivation and what drives us to do the things that we do or, you know, seek out the things that we want to do. Uh, so people with a lo lots of dementias um, develop what's known as apathy, the, the kind of de novo loss of motivation. And it's kind of um, less um, kind of well publicized as compared to things like irritability or aggression. But apathy in dementia is um, actually quite a devastating symptoms so obviously you know the loss of drive to do very basic things like wash yourself or eat or look after yourself can have a huge effect on your health um, and so um, and we and in HD you know as compared to things like depression and irritability we don't have any treatments for apathy at all in clinic so it's um, and there's also a very intimate link between HD and apathy so as HD progresses there's a lot more apathy there's a lot of apathy in the condition so my PhD is kind of about the neural and computational basis of motivation and apathy. So I do a bit of work at the Max Planck Center developing computational models of normal human motivation and then thinking about the neural basis of those models and then coming up with hypotheses as to why people with HD develop apathy. So in particular, I'm interested in basal ganglia circuitry and how disruption to basal ganglia circuits puts people at risk of losing motivation. No, that's great. It all sounds like really interesting work. It's sort of you know, looking at different aspects, I guess, of Huntington's disease as well, which is so important. Um, and if I just put this question to the whole panel, how, so we sort of touched on this with some of your answers, but how do you think um, the research you're doing in Huntington's disease is relevant then to understand other types of dementia? So I know, actually, you touched on this um, more b broadly with the work that you're doing. Marina and Lauren, maybe? I think... Um the advantage of, of hunting of HD is because there's a genetic test, you can actually um, observe the progression of the disease many, many years before our people start manifesting symptoms. This isn't, and because HD is actually the most common dementia, genetic dementia, you can, you have much larger cohorts compared to, let's say, familial HD. Um, so it gives you this amazing opportunity to actually monitor disease progression many, many years to understand the mechanisms that are there in the brain already to try to protect the brain from um, from declining rapidly. So, for example, looking, like I said before, the life lifestyle factors, things like that, that can affect um, disease pro or cognitive decline in HD. So, and I think going back right to other diseases that could be really like, let's say, Parkinson's disease, where they don't really have very good biomarkers at the moment. It's a much more complicated disease, especially because the, the disease 
the the cause of the disease is unknown. But you can sort of start to see, you know, to what extent do these kind of mechanisms, to what extent do these factors actually have an effect on on this disease? So you can try to try to make some parallels between the disease and see whether one what works in one disease and to what extent it works in another disease, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, and just building on that, um, having that pool of people that are that we know for sure are going to get the disease um, can help us build kind of models for how we approach neurodegeneration. So, for example, um, neurofilament light is a protein that can be measured in CSF and now blood, which is... Um, kind of hot topic now in neurodegeneration mm-hmm. and we can do a lot of very exciting and interesting research in Huntington's disease and that's some of the work that I work on but we can hopefully look to what point can we start to look at when does this protein increase compared to healthy controls uh, in gene carriers um, and we expect it to be quite early on. At the minute, We it seems to be one of the earliest things that changes in Huntington's disease gene carriers, um, which is, mm-hmm. is quite exciting. Um, so, yeah, it's probably very similar to what Marina was saying. The only other point that I'd like to make is that, um, you know, studying psychiatric symptoms from a neuropsychiatric perspective can be quite useful because obviously in psychiatry, in more general adult psychiatry, we don't know quite a lot about why you know what is normal motivation or what is depression and um and what is anxiety for example and so looking at neurological conditions where these things develop quite you know quite commonly mm-hmm. uh, may give us some clues as to the circuitry that's involved in normal or you know like um in normal function and also in the general psychiatric population as well um, just one more thing to add. So in terms of kind of treatment for other degenerative diseases, so Huntington's is almost paving the way for this new generation of types of drugs that will be lowering toxic proteins and things like tau or beta amyloid. Um, there are already certain uh, phase one trials and very similar to what we're already doing in Huntington's disease. So they're learning a lot from what we're doing already. Um, so it, uh, it's nice to be kind of... Helping yeah, that. leading the way yeah. in the field almost with yeah. that as well. That's awesome. Um, and so I guess because all three of you kind of come from different backgrounds and, you know, you've taken kind of various career paths to get to this place where you are um, still, you know, looking at different aspects um, of the same disease. Um, I was just wondering if you can highlight to some of our early career researchers the advantages of, you know, coming from varied parts probably have the least kind of relevant background to where I am now but I think it kind of goes to say about the the importance of of bringing people in research that don't necessarily have a a clearly medical background or a a bioscience background so I did my first degree was in like literature and then I did I I did the green cognitive science and and neuroinformatics and then kind of one thing led to the other and I think there's a lot more people now that are entering uh, research careers in kind of clinical um, topics such as dementia that have a diverse background and you just bring a different way of seeing things and a different way of doing things that I think can only be a strength versus like a weakness. So it's kind of, in, in a sense, it's kind of nice in the lab, that, um, in, in in Sarah's lab, we are kind of a very diverse crowd. So there's quite a few clinicians, quite a few basic scientists. There's a lab and there's a kind of neuroimagers or, um, so it's, we try to approach things from a kind of, 
all aspects, as you kind of highlighted. So we do different stuff. We we look at the cognitive, we look at the neuroimaging, we look at the 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 lab. We we try to and we do clinical trials. So we try to approach things from all perspectives possible to try to see, you know, uh, try to kind of narrow down things and how to bring research forward. And are there any challenges that, uh, because you come from different? sort of backgrounds and like almost speak sort of maybe slightly different, you know, jargon languages and that kind of thing? It's difficult to understand the wet lab. (laughs) (laughs) If you you don't come from a wet lab background, it's very difficult to understand. So we we constantly have this this divide. I'm a unique person. (laughs) Yeah, Lauren's like the crossroads (laughs) of everything. And in lab meetings, I try and ask questions that I know the answer to, but I know that... Other people in both your talks, your talks can be really very cognitive and like if you haven't done psychology, yeah, yeah, exactly. it's um I know there's the lab people are sitting being like what, <laughs> what is cognitive reserve? <laughs> um, so yeah, I think there is some difficulty. I think the biggest issue for us at the minute is that we're in different geographical spaces. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think our clinical side is very tight because we're on the open office and work a lot together and have a lot of social um, yeah. cake uh, Fridays and coffee mm-hmm. mornings and um, uh, are very social as well as um, work hard together. So um, that helps. But I think if we could all be in the same place, there would be a lot more um, across the whole Huntington's Disease Centre, a lot more um, cohesiveness. I don't really have, I mean, from a clinical perspective, I suppose it's nice to kind of, um, I mean, one advantage is you're very acutely aware of clinical problems. So you can see when people are perhaps drifting into areas that are quite far from the clinical need. Um, and, but, um, you know, the, the flip side is obviously, um, you know, for young career researchers, I mean, you have to compete with really great scientists like Marina and Lauren and mm-hmm. the, you know and and that's fine it's but it's just uh that's part of the challenge of being a clinical academic you know like actually undershells himself yeah he's, yeah. Like, <laughs> he's uh, digging for confidence <laughs> I'm not, absolutely not actually he's a very extremely bright scientist yeah. himself uh, <laughs> not just <laughs> <laughs> and a very good yeah. psychiatrist. Yeah. So one, one more thing is actually really important: the the fact that the the clinic and the and the lab are actually very closely linked, um, and that allows us a to reach out to the patients and their families and, and establish a really. So we have really good, generally really good relationship with all of the patients, and they take part in our research again and again and again, and they 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 feel motivated. But we kind of we have this really. Um, it's, like patient comfort and making sure the pa- the patients know what they're getting involved in is really really important and gaining their trust and having this trust relations is really really important and I think the fact that the th- the clinic team is is in- integrated in the lab makes this this work even even easier because they they know the clinicians very well personally because they go to the clinics mm-hmm. and then through that that we can get to know them in the research side as well it's very much a key component of the MDT the multidisciplinary team um, and I think definitely in the HD side of things, it gives them a lot of hope but to be taken part in, and even if it's not to help themselves, to help their children and future generations. Can I add one advantage that just slightly picks up from, I know we're talking about disadvantages, but uh, from a from a psychiatry perspective, I think um, as being a psychiatrist working in HD, um, it comes back to what Lauren was saying about the nature of the community. And, you know, as, as compared to other 
you know other disorders or other conferences you go to with hd you really are exposed to everything from cell biology to cutting edge uh, you know disease modifying treatments to care end of life issues the management of neurological conditions like you really get exposed to the real kind of the whole gamut of clinical medicine to some extent and you know so it's a it um even just for trainees out there who are thinking about doing hd i mean it is a relatively rare disorder but i think the the exposure that you get to science is i i second to none from what i've from my experience anyway i think conferences that I've been to on specific disorders or that are more top level to do with psychiatry tend to have one kind of a higher level focus and rarely dip into the levels that you get at a HD conference. So certainly as a training experience and as an educational experience, I think working at HD has been fantastic for me, certainly. Well, that was going to be my next question. Okay. <laughs> Just what advice do you have for people thinking about, you know, um, getting into this area? But Marina and Lauren, do you have anything else to add to um, Akshay's answer there. Ask that researcher out for coffee <laughs> if you want to. Yeah. If you want to get involved in the research and hope for the best. Keep if you know what you want to. The trick is finding what you want to do and then just annoying people until they they, mm-hmm. <laughs> they or they take you on. So um, I think it's particularly now. It's a really exciting period in HD research with all the clinical trials happening at the moment. And um, you know, we we're doing a lot of exciting projects, looking at uh, you know uh, people with that have the gene twenty years from onset, the young adult study. Uh, you know, we we have the clinical trials running, and we do a lot of other stuff in parallel, more observational things to try and understand again the disease progression and things like that. So it's all kind of come together. And I think in the next few years, we're going to have a very big breakthrough, especially with the first clinical trial, the Roche one, coming up um, in the next year, hopefully. So there's a lot of really exciting things and a really, really exciting time for HD research and for the patients, obviously. And I think it is if somebody is interested in neurodegenerative research, this is a really good time to kind of get involved and gain a lot of exciting experience about from biomarkers to uh, running a clinical trial to um, looking at um, neurodegeneration, you know, 20 years from onset. And these things hopefully will create a new generation that will then move on to other, um, you know, other diseases like Alzheimer's or PD. And, you know, we saw recently with the NFL, for example, with Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease that it seems to be a real good marker for that. So there's a lot of experience that one can gain gain in HD that can be transferred to other diseases later on as well. Because I think that's going to be the key for all of these diseases is treating before the degeneration really mm-hmm. happens. So we're going to need ways to monitor, pick up these degeneration, and whatever it may be, yeah. mm-hmm. um, more in a, maybe once you get over a certain age on like an on- annual checkup or mm-hmm. um, we, that's like in terms of NFL, for example, we see it in 10 years from now in the clinic, you take blood NFL, you know, when you come in on your yearly visits, oh, it's slightly raised above your predicted level for your age and CAG repeat length. Um, maybe go have a lumbar puncture or go have an MRI scan. And, um, you know, once you build up, have all these different tools to monitor different pathologies, then and then hopefully the drugs have already <laughs> come by then, then um, yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. going to be the key. Because it's hard to cure something that's already, you know, damaged half the brain so a lot of these diseases once symptoms occur there's already been a significant amount of 
of damage Huntington's we know there's changes 20 mm. years before mm. um in brain scans before the diagnosis so of motor symptoms so. great um so thanks all i think that's probably it's already time to start wrapping up mm-hmm. um but it's been a really interesting um, sort of discussion around, you know, I've learned more um, about hunt- well, Huntington's disease in general and then, you know, how the work you're doing is applicable across to other neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and then, yeah, just some tips, I think, for our early career researchers as well, which is always um, so important. Um, So I'd like to thank our panellists today, Marina, Lauren and Akshay. Thank you for joining us. Um, Listeners, don't forget that you can share your views on this topic by posting your comments in the Dementia Researcher Forum. You can also engage with us on Twitter using the hashtag uh, ECR Dementia. Are you all on Twitter, by the way? I'm on Twitter, yes. Yes. Are you happy for our uh, <laughs> yes. listeners yes. to start yes. engaging with you as well? <laughs> yeah, of those numbers. Actually, had a viral tweet once. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what are your Twitter handles, if you could just share it? Yeah, Lauren Byrne seven three three seven. Let me get mine up. Hang on. My initials are MP underscore Neuro. Neuro. Awesome. And Aksha's just looking up his... <laughs> okay, I've got it. <laughs> so obviously I use Twitter a lot. I use Twitter. Um, it's underscore A underscore Nair and A-I-R. Perfect. Okay. okay. Um, well, we'll have those details uh, up on our post as well. So feel free to follow and engage with today's panellists. Um, finally, don't forget to subscribe to the Dementia Research Podcast. Leave us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. Preferably five stars, of course, but you know, I'll leave that up to you. Um, and tell all your friends and colleagues about us. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.